You know, last week, uh, Pastor Jim Perdue was with us, and not only did he do just a phenomenal job in leading our men's retreat, but he did an exceptional job of expositing God's Word last Sunday morning. He preached out of Psalm chapter uh, 1, and what he did was he, he, he followed along the thought of the author there where he was comparing and contrasting the way of the righteous with the way of the unrighteous. And as he began to preach through that, my heart and my mind, it couldn't help but to gravitate to the passage of Scripture that's before us this morning here in Genesis chapter 25. It's a story of Jacob and Esau. And the reason I think my mind kept going to it is because it really is, I think, one of the greatest examples in all of the Scriptures, either the Old Testament or the New, of what uh, the way of the righteous and the way of the unrighteous actually looks like, how the unrighteous and the righteous live their life and the difference between them. And I think it's laid out in this particular passage. If you are familiar with the story, you know that Esau sells his birthright for what amounts to a, not a hill of beans, but a bowl of beans. Let me, let me repeat that one more time. He sells his birthright and everything that comes to it with all the blessings that are attached to it for a bowl of beans. This is what theologians and some commentators have come to call the Esau principle. The Esau principle is when we relinquish things of great value, oftentimes of great eternal value, for things that satisfy our temporal appetites. So in other words, if, if you're like me, here's an easy way to say it. You're giving up a whole lot for a very little. That's the Esau principle. And so what I want to do is I want to talk about that this morning in light of this text. I want to unpack it. And what I want to do is I want to show kind of how this Esau principle works out in the life of an unbeliever, how it looks in the life of an unbeliever, and also give some application for believers and sometimes how they're practicing that same Esau principle. Now, before we do that, I'm going to have to give you some background to our story today because I think the better background that I give you, the more that you'll be able to understand the text that we're going to be studying this morning. You'll remember earlier in the book of Genesis, uh, we see God sovereignly call out Abraham. Remember that, Abram? And he tells him, he says, come out from this land, come out from this pagan land. I'm going to show you a land in which you're going to go, and I'm going to make your name great amongst the nations. In other words, I'm going to make your name great because I'm going to make your great and your people great. I'm going to make a people from you. You're going to be a father of a great nation. Your descendants are going to be more than the stars of the sky, more, more number than, than, than the, uh, the sands of the seashore. He goes, there's going to be a great nation, and that nation I'm going to be setting apart unto myself for my good pleasure and for my specific and divine and sovereign purposes. So this is what we find in the beginning of the book of Genesis. But we know that Abraham had to be very patient. Because God was not really in as much of a hurry as Abraham was. In fact, what we find is Abraham, he was 100 years old before he began to see the promise of God begin to take shape in his own life. He was 100. His wife Sarah was 90 before they had their first child, Isaac. And Isaac came along and he began to grow up and he didn't get married until he was 40 years of age. And then when he married Rebecca, he finds out that, you know what, the promise of God is really uh, in, detriment, is in detriment and in danger because uh, he finds out that the wife that he has is barren. 
she can't produce any children. So she's very much like Sarah. So what a husband does as he ought to, he intercedes for his wife to God. And he says, he, says, he says, God, please open up her womb. Allow her to bear children. And God answers the prayer, but they have to wait for 20 years. They wait for 20 years and wait until he's in nice prime childbearing years of 60 years of age. And they, she becomes pregnant. God is faithful to do what he says that he will do. And, and, it's, and the surprise is it's not one, it's two. Well, they're going to have twins, and when she's pregnant, she's never been pregnant before, but, you know, women are amazing because they know when something's not quite right. It's that woman's intuition, and she knew that there was something not quite right within her belly. In Genesis 25, verse 22, the Bible says, and the children struggled together within her, and she says, if this is thus, why is this happening to me? So what was happening is, it's one thing. My wife is like, I praise God I didn't have more than one boy. Praise God for that. Because she sees people with a lot of boys, and they're fighting, and they're jumping, and they're doing everything. She goes, I wouldn't be able to handle that. Well, try jumping and fighting inside the womb, not just outside of the womb. And that's what's going on. They're fighting to have dominion over each other in her stomach. And so not only in her womb, not only is it ultimately causing great physical pain, but it's really causing a lot of spiritual and mental anguish for her, wondering why this is. And so she does what any other young woman would. She begins to turn to those that she loves, and she begins to ask, hey, is this normal? You know, fighting inside. And of course they say, no, that's not normal at all. And so what does she do? She begins to seek counsel from God. And the Bible says that God speaks to her. Now we don't know how it is that he speaks to her, but he does. And here it says, it says, God answered to her, and he says, two nations are in your womb. The two, and two peoples from within you shall be divided. The one shall be stronger than the other, and the older shall serve the younger. So he's not only explaining what's going on inside of the womb, that there's two boys that are going at it because there's contention between them. But he, she also, God also gives her a picture of what is to come, of what the future is going to hold. And he says, your two sons are going to be over two different nations. And what this ultimately is going to pick, picture is it's going to pick, picture the way of the righteous and the way of the unrighteous. Now, God, if you look at Romans chapter 9, sovereignly chose Jacob, even before they were born, to be able to carry on the family line, for him to be able to carry on the family name. And it would be through Jacob that ultimately the promised Messiah would eventually be able to come. So this is, this is a pretty big deal. But what he tells him, he says, hey, listen, but the younger is going to be stronger than the older, and the, the older is going to serve the younger. That was, un, that was unheard of during this particular day, but that's what was ultimately going to happen. So there's a struggle between them even from the beginning of birth or even in the womb before birth. But at birth, we begin to see this same struggle. When they're born, of course, Esau is the older one. He's born first. And when he comes out, the Bible says that he's completely red and he has a thick coat of hair all over his body. Okay, and so I, I love reading old ancient commentators, you know, and the old commentators would say, well, Esau was a man-child when born. He was born with a thick, lustrous uh, a, a set of hair, a full man beard, and a full set of teeth. Now, I'm not really sure if that's what's going on in the text, but that's what they were describing it as. What we do know is true is this, is that he came out beet red. We don't know why he's red, uh, we don't know if it was because of the hair, the color of the hair. 
uh, but he was red and he was hairy. Basically, it's everything a new mother is hoping for for their baby boy, a red, hairy child covered with hair from head to toe. This is, this is what she has when this child is born. And what's interesting about the child is he comes and there's something on his heel. She looks down and it's a hand. That's disturbing. And um, child comes out, pulling baby out. Here comes baby, something attached. It's a hand and attached to that hand, fortunately, is another baby, all right? So just kind of like the chain of monkeys. You've seen those? The barrel of monkeys, right? You've seen that? Well, here comes his brother. So already you're seeing this fight for dominion even before they're born, while they're born, but even as they begin to grow up. As they grow up, the contention grows because they're two completely different guys. Um, Esau is a skillful hunter. He is the man of the field. He is the man of the wild. I want you to think of Gaston, right? A beauty in the beast. I want you to kind of picture that. I mean, hair all over him, just as everybody wants to be like him. You know, nobody's neck is as thick as him. You know, that, that type of thing. This is Gaston thinking. He can trap. He can track. He can bring home the bacon. He's not going to fry it up in the pan, but he can bring home the game, all right? He's an outdoorsman. He loves the wild. He'd rather be outside than inside. Well, Jacob is completely different. The Bible says that he's a quiet man, that he's, he dwells in tents. He is far more refined and domesticated than his brother. He doesn't really like the outside. It's too humid. He doesn't like feeling sticky and getting all sweaty. He doesn't like the woods. He, he likes the comfort of the tents, and he loves to cook with mama, one of his favorite things, loves to bake. He is the quintessential mama's boy, all right? So here's, we see huge differences between the two, and when you have that big of a difference between the two, what are you seeing? You're seeing that even more contention is going to develop. Well, probably the greatest cause of, really con- um, of this conflict between them is really bad parenting. And I don't want to be too difficult here because they're too harsh on their parents, but their parents love to play favorites. That's not good parenting, all right? And so we know that Isaac really, really loves Esau. And the reason that he loves Esau is because that's his boy, right? I mean, he's the star on the softball team. He's the guy that goes out and can bring five different animals in on one hunt. I mean, this guy is awesome. But what he loves the most is eating the game that his son gets. And so it gives us a little picture. I don't want to make too much of this, but I do believe it's within the text, and I do believe it helps us understand Isaac would have clearly understood the teaching and what God had said to his wife, that the younger Jacob was going to rule over the older. But what we find with Isaac is that Isaac is a guy that lives more based on his physical appetites than he does his spiritual appetites. Later on, he's still going to pick the one, even though God had not picked that one. And so what we find is, you ever heard the phrase like father, like son? Well, his son gets the same physical appetite as his father for the things of the flesh, except for he gets it to the nth degree. He gets a double portion of this desire. And what we find is, is that later in life from Uh, from Esau is going to come the Edomites. And when we read through the word of God, what we find from the Edomites is they were fleshly people. They were people of the flesh that lived according to their own fleshly desires. Now, on the other side, of course, you have Jacob. 
and he was a mama's boy, and he liked to cook, so of course mama loves him all the more. She's, she's the favorite, right? And it, it's kind of like I was watching Duck Dynasty the other day. Anybody ever watch that? And Jed or Jeb, I forget, Jeb I think is the one, Jeb, is that right? The, one of the younger sons, and the other ones are always vying for the mom's love and say, well, do you love me more than Jeb? And she goes, almost, I almost love you as much as Jeb. And so, so you can imagine Esau always trying to fight for the mother's love, the son wanting the father's love, causing contention there. And we don't really know why Rebecca really was so fond of Jacob. It could be a spiritual issue. It could be that she gets that this is God's called one, that he's the called one of God and that the, the Messiah would come from his line or it could just be the maternal protective instincts that this little boy is kind of shut out by the father, and so now she's going to give a double portion of love and try to make up for what the father is not giving him. We don't know, but I think it's clear through all of that that there are some clear tensions in between these two, and it's developing it through chapter 25, and now we finally get to the text before us this morning. We understand that. It helps us to understand what we're about to read. We get to verse 29. And it says, once when Jacob was cooking stew, there he is, mama's boy in the kitchen, cooking stew, Esau came in from the field, and he was exhausted, and Esau said to Jacob, let me eat some of that red stew, for I am exhausted. Now, I want you to, I want to break this down for you, this verse a little bit, take our time kind of working through it, because there's a much, much more here than meets the eye. When it says, once when Jacob was cooking stew, uh, the Hebrew verb cooking can also be translated uh, boiling. Maybe your uh, translations have that boiling, cooking, pretty much the same thing. But that same Greek verb used in other places in the Old Testament means uh, it, it describes a presumptuous action. So I think what the writer of, of Genesis is doing, who is Moses, is letting us know that Jacob is cooking up a lot more than just a pot of stew. He is actually planning something, and he is manipulating the circumstances because there's something that his brother wants that he wants. So he is cooking up a scheme. Please understand something. Even though Jacob is supposed to be this picture of righteousness, he's righteous because God made him righteous, not because there was righteousness of his own, all right? He was a scoundrel. This guy, you see through the rest of his life, he is ripping people off left and right. So, so he, it's not his goodness, but it's going to be the goodness that God ultimately bestows upon him by his grace. And so this is what we see, is that Jacob is not a hunter, but what's interesting is he is hunting the hunter in this particular thing. He is laying a trap for Esau to be able to catch him so he may get what it is that he ultimately wants to get. And so now we see something about the character of Esau in this verse as well. Notice that phrase again when it says, when he comes in, he says, let me eat some of the red stew. Now in this particular translation, I think it kind of softens it up a little bit. Actually in the Hebrew, he just says this. He says, feed me, feed me. It's more of a command. It's not like a suggestion. Uh, I want you to think for a moment, if this helps you, think Cookie Monster. All right, that's what, that's what comes to mind here. Cookie Monster, he's got one mindset. What is that? Cookie. I want cookie, right? And he gets cookie, and what does he do? He gobbles, he gobbles it down. And what I love about Cookie Monster is he looks crazy, right? He doesn't have fixed eyes. His, his eyes are rolling around in his head. This is a picture 
of what ultimately is going on with Esau. He is out of his mind. He is, he is possessed. He is uncontrolled. He has unbridled, unquenchable appetite. And he wants to do anything he can to be able to fulfill it. And so he comes in. And what's interesting about that word as well, that Hebrew word, feed me, it was an ancient word that the rabbis would use to talk about the perf- purposeful cramming food down an animal's throat in order to fatten them for the slaughter. And so basically what the picture that Moses is giving here is this, as he is shoving and wants to shove this stuff in his mouth, but it's ultimately going to lead to his demise. His fleshly desires and his pursuit of the flesh is going to lead to his ultimate downfall. And so this is what the scriptures are, are, are saying to us. Now, it's also interesting. I want to draw your attention. I told you we we're going to unpack it to the word stew there in verse 29. He, he talks about this stew that he's ultimately cooking up. But what we find is, is in the original language in the Hebrew, that word is not there. The authors or the writers and the translators of the Bible are actually giving us the word stew. Now, they're not being disingenuous or dishonest. They're not making stuff up. Later on down, when it uses the word stew in verse, uh, verse um, uh, uh, I forget where it is, but it's somewhere in there, uh, a little bit further down, what we find is this, is that the word is there, but they're supplying it for the above. So you sit there and say, well, what's the significance of that? Well, really what it says is it says that when he comes, here's how you would literally translate it. He comes in and says, let me gulp down some of that red stuff. And then it, then it uses the word, the Greek word, or the Hebrew word again, red stuff. I want to gulp down some of that red stuff, red stuff. You say, well, what's the significance of that? He doesn't even know what's in the pot. He sees that it's red. He's so hungry. He doesn't even know what it is. His passions are so great. He doesn't care what in the world he eats on. Or, or he doesn't know. It could be blood for all he knows. He doesn't care. Just give me some of the, reeds, the, the red stuff. He just wants to shove it down his throat. It's showing this incredible compulsion of the flesh to want his desires and fleshly desires to be met. He's out of his mind. Has anybody ever experienced that? Has anybody ever felt that way? Somewhere along the line, I guarantee that you have. That in the moment of heated lust and desire for something of the flesh, you went all cookie monster. You got that? Your eyes were rolling in the back of your head. You weren't clearly thinking. All you wanted to do was have your appetite satisfied. And you know what? You didn't give two thoughts to whatever it was that was going to satisfy you. And here's the picture here of where he is. And what's interesting is the author, again, Moses, does kind of a little play on words. He says, therefore, his name was called Edom. Now, the play on words here in the Hebrew is this. is The, the word for red in Hebrew is Adam. And he calls him, he says, now his name is Edom. Do you see the, the, the distinguishment between? Basically what he says is he was born red, he desires red, he is red, his children will be red. Do you know what the idea is? The idea of burning with passion. The idea of burning with, bur- with, a, with a physical compassion for the things of the world. And this is how he would describe him and the Edomites and his ancestors would come beyond him. Like father, like their sons. They too would have unquenchable appetites for the things of the flesh. Remember what the whole, his whole line is picturing. It's picturing the way of the unrighteous. Now in verse 31, Jacob finally comes to the moment that he's been waiting for. This is what he's been planning. He's set the trap. Now he's about to spring the trap. 
He actually tells him he's not going to give him any food, but he has a condition for when he will give him some of the red stuff. He says in verse 31, Jacob said, sell me your birthright. If you give me your birthright, I'll give you some of this red stuff. I'll give you some of my red stew, all right? Now, what is he asking for? He's willing to give up nothing, but he's asking for everything. The birthright was everything to a young man into a family. The birthright were all the rights that were held by the firstborn son of a family. It was his right to continue on the lineage. It was his right to be able to continue the family and continue the family name. He would receive really, really the whole estate as, as his inheritance. He would receive twice as much money and twice as much of the different possessions he would receive for, uh, over all of the other sons that were brought about inside of the family. And so what he, was, what he was asking for was ultimately everything. See, here's what I love about Esau, or excuse me, about Jacob. Jacob did everything in the wrong way. I get that, but at least he was pursuing the right thing. He understood and he could recognize the value of that which was infinitely valuable. And here's the first point that I want to give you. We're going to go through these very quickly. Here's the big difference between the righteous and the unrighteous. The first difference is a righteous man has the ability to see what is infinitely valuable and he pursues it. The unrighteous does not. The unrighteous does not see, they are blinded to see what is infinitely valuable. Do you understand that? The righteous does not. Here is Jacob. He has the bowl of beans and he sits there and says, hey, this is good. I've got appetites for that as well. But you know what? This is far greater. Esau, who represents the one who is what? Demonstrates the unrighteous heart of a man, doesn't see any distinction between the birthright and a bowl of beans. In fact, his own flesh sees the beans as being even greater than all that ultimately comes with the birthright. The regular just physical satisfaction, the temporal physical satisfaction in this world is more important to the unbeliever than all of the riches of God. You guys got that, right? And that's the distinction. And let me just say this. For a true believer in Jesus Christ, what he cherishes the most is Christ. What he cherishes the most is Christ. I want you to hear this because I want you to hear the gospel. And it's not because we are better and it's not because we are working harder and it's not because we feel more guilty that we love Jesus Christ. It is a divine act of God in the heart of the righteous. It is God going into your heart and my heart and when he saves us, he regenerates us and what he does is he gives an affection that we've never had before inside of our heart for Jesus Christ and the things of God. You guys got that? It is a supernatural work. And so what happens here is there's nothing that we boast in except for Christ and Christ crucified. And when we look at the things of this world, we say, hey, listen, I know that my body still really desires some of the things of the flesh, but I tell you, there is something far greater. Jesus is more valuable than all of this. And that's why for a lost person, you talk with them and they go, why is your relationship with Christ so important? Why in the world would you give of your time? Why in the world would you give of your money? Why in the world would you give of your life? They don't see it. Why would they sacrifice for something they don't see as infinitely valuable? Instead, they would expend their life that they view valuable, and the Bible says it's the things of the world. 
Now that's the application of that principle for, uh, for those who are saved and those who are, for those who are lost. But what about those who are saved? Did you know that sometimes we still do the same thing as believers? That sometimes in our life, we're getting disjointed and we're getting off track. And all of a sudden, the things of the world all of a sudden begin to seem so much shinier and so much nicer and so much more wonderful. And if you're not careful, your affections for God can begin to fade and to become less in our hearts. Are you hearing me? I know this. Why? Not because I see it in you. It's because I see it in me. And when there's affections, we're sitting here, we're singing to God. We're worshiping to God. And some of us, our minds are completely somewhere else. The affections are growing cold. Why? Because our hearts are gravitating to the things of the world. Our hearts, sometimes our flesh, are wanting to be satisfied. But what is the difference? You say, how do you know that you're a believer in Jesus Christ? One of the keys is because you know. If you will just take a moment, you will just take, st- take a step back, you'll begin to think of Christ. You will begin to think of the gospel. You'll begin to think of his value. All of a sudden, the affections of Christ are stirred up again anew and fresh. And we begin to live the way that God has called us to live. Notice this as well. Look at Esau's response. He says here, so the first thing, first difference, a a righteous man has the ability to see what is infinitely valuable and he pursues it. An unrighteous man does not. But notice his response. He says, I am about to die. What good is the birthright, he says. Now listen. I don't want you to think for a second that Esau was truly to the point of death. The last time he ate was breakfast, okay? All right, you got that? He ate breakfast, he's out, but you've got to understand something. Nothing makes you more hungry than getting up before dark, strapping on your climber, going out into the woods and going out into the swamp when everybody else is sleeping and climbing a tree Breaking your rotator cuff, tearing it in half, getting up inside of a tree and seeing nothing but squirrels for the whole day until it's dark. When you get out of that tree, my friend, I have heard that you are ravenously hungry. You go home and you say, feed me, all right? But listen, don't think for a second. Do not think for a second. I mean, he's, he's, he's a drama queen, man. Just, oh, it's, I'm just so hungry. I, I can't do it. I just can't do it. You know, sometimes we as believers, that's exactly how we sound, right? Do you know how ridiculous when we sit down and go, I just, I, just, I just can't. I just can't. Dude, you have the power of the Holy Spirit inside of you. You may not be able to do it right now, but you can. You can. And you one day may be able to. I know you will at least when God uh, glorifies you. But don't say you can't. You can because he's in you, right? And so he sits there and don't, don't think of this. How do, we, how do we know he wasn't to the point of death? Well, at the end of the story, he eats, he eats and then he just hops up and he leaves. There's no ambulance called. There's no couple days in the, in the hospital. He eats, and in the, in, the the, in, in the Hebrew, again, he just, just eats, he immediately gets up and he goes. So notice this. We see the second difference here beginning to come out. And the different, second difference between the righteous and the unrighteous is this. A, the, a, a righteous man considers the future outcome of his actions, and the unrighteous do not. 
In the beginning of this story, Esau has a bowl of beans. He's going to make a decision, and he's going to take steps. And at the end of this, he's going to have a birthright. You got that? He understood that the decisions and the things that he does now will impact the future. Guess what? Esau could care less about the future. All he cares about is the here and the now and the fleshly gratification. He's not looking for it or considering what he does now will ultimately impact his life later. That is the picture of a lost person. You know what it is? It's that live now, live life to its fullest, live and let live. He who has dies with the most toys ultimately wins. Are you tracking with me? So live it up now. This is all you have. Live, eat, and tomorrow we die. It's the idea of the flesh. But the believer knows that there's something far greater to come. And he understands that the relationship and the decisions that he makes now ultimately makes him in the future. And so in the beginning of the story, we see that one has the one and one has the other, but because of their decisions, they end up swapping. What's so sad about Esau is he can't see the future. He takes no thought of what he's about to do for the future. He gives up so much for so little. And what's amazing is it's not as though, once again, that Jacob doesn't have a hunger. I want you to understand that. In salvation, in salvation, God, and I wish he would, I wish he would, I wish he would take away every single physical sinful desire in my body and in yours, but he doesn't. But he doesn't. It's a long process of working and trusting and leaning and calling for his grace and living out the grace and living out the mercy. He doesn't do it. But what allows him to overcome that desire is he has a greater desire for the things to come. You got that? Do you see that? And listen in Hebrews chapter 11. There we see really what we call the hall of faith. There's a long list that the author of Hebrews gives us. And in there, he he lists all of these different amazing Christians that were delivered by God from their difficulties. Now, folks, right now isn't a lot of what we want is God just, just deliver us from our difficulties. God, help me with this job. Help me with the family situation. God, help me with the kids. Help me with this. We have difficulties. Even as believers, you have difficulties, yes? And we would love for all of those to be able to go away. And the Bible says sometimes he delivers them from that. He says, for some, he did not. And this is what the scriptures say. Listen to this. The author wrote, others suffered mocking and floggings, even chains and imprisonment. They were stoned. They were sawn in two. They were killed with the sword. They went about in sins of sheep and goats, destitute, afflicted, mistreated, of whom the world was not worthy, wandering about in deserts and mountains, in the dens and caves of the earth. Now notice this. And all these, though, commended through their faith, did not receive what was promised. Since God had provided, notice, something better for us, that apart from us, they should be made perfect. He says there were some that were never delivered. There were some that were never, their fleshly desire for for, for comfort and for, for protection and for all these other things, all those things were out there. They desired those things. They didn't get those things. But do you know what they understood? They were able to remain faithful, not because they were delivered from them, but because they knew there was something better to ultimately come. I love the scripture that says this in 1 Corinthians 2, verse 9. He says, what no eye has seen, nor ear has heard, nor the heart of man imagined, what God has prepared for those who love him. 
Let me, let me just say, you know what the hardest part sometimes of just living this life and just keeping on? Can I be completely transparent with you? Is that, is that all right? The hardest part is I have a hard time seeing what's to come. I just have a hard time. And you're sitting there and you're in the midst of all the stuff and so much times in your flesh you just want to kind of give up. And you don't want to keep fighting. You don't want to keep moving forward. But it's by faith that when we read scriptures like that, we know that what is to come makes it all worthwhile. And what is to come? Christ. We inherit Christ, he says. There's a third thing in this text. And there's a third difference. The third difference is this. The righteous sin but always repent, but the righteous do not. The third is the righteous sin, but always repent, but the righteous do not. Look at verse 34. It says, Then Jacob gave Esau bread and lentil stew, and he ate and he drank and he rose and he went his way. And Moses, who wrote the book of Genesis, did an interesting thing here. He kind of webs all these series of verbs together. Notice them with me. He says, Notice he ate and drank and rose and he went. Now, this is a very similar story. If you think about this, this is this same idea of selling your birthright right, to satisfy your appetite has already happened once. It happened in the garden. With Adam and Eve, they had a fleshly desire for something that they know that they should not have had. But what they did was they ended up giving over to their compulsions and to their sin and to their appetite, to their sinful, to, to their appetite. And then what did they ultimately do? They lost their birthright because of it. They lost the fellowship of God and everything that ultimately came with it. But we do see a difference between the two. With Adam and Eve, we do see later on and we genuinely see and recognize a repentance. We see that there is a shame for Adam and Eve after they sin. They recognize what it is that they have done. There is a turning back to God. Now God has to pursue them, but there still is a turning back and exposing themselves to God and being clear and and being open to God and honest with God with who they are and what they did. But there is no such thing here with Jacob. What did Jacob do? He ate, he drank, he rose, and he went on his way. No shame, no guilt, no repentance. He just kept on going and the same way that he had continued, same track that he was living on, never to turn and to be able to repent. Now, notice what the word of God says. It says, thus Esau despised his birthright. What it means is, is not only did he not think it valuable, he came to hate it and hate everything that had to do with God and being a part of God's family. That's how hard his heart ultimately became because he was unwilling to repent when he had the, reti- the time to ultimately repent. Are you, are you tracking with me? So his heart is going harder and harder. And so the scripture's warning us of this type of thing. It says in 2 Corinthians chapter 7 and verse 10, it says, For godly grief produces a repentance that leads to salvation without regret, whereas worldly grief produces death. So here's the picture. The picture is that when the word of God and the gospel is being preached, there are oftentimes, and even in the hearts and lives of people in here, who you know in your heart of hearts it's sin. You know that you're on the wrong track. You know that what you're doing and the decisions that you are making are completely off base. But you know what the idea is? You just keep going. You feel bad, but what I'm telling you is feeling bad is not enough. 
Just because you come to the house of God and you've, you've sinned all week and you're living and pursuing sin, that's different than stumbling in sin. Do you understand what I mean? But you're pursuing a lifestyle of sin and you say, well, I'll just come to the church, feel bad. That is not repentance. He felt bad, but he never turned. He never turned in the other direction. Well, let me just see just kind of a couple things in closing. I'm telling you this. Whatever it is that you're pursuing in this world, it is not worth losing your soul over. What good and what value is there to gain the whole world but lose your soul? That is not where you want to be. Secondly, some of you are not thinking in the future. And I want to let you know, the life here is temporal, but there is an eternity. How do you spend eternity? Think towards eternity. Quit looking at just today. And here's what I want you to understand, even as a believer. If you find yourself beginning to live for today and you're not making decisions based on how this is going to impact your future, you're in big trouble. How many of us can look back on their life right now and you can look at decisions that you made and you know they were the wrong decisions and you would give anything to be able to go back and make a different decision? Anybody? you give anything to be able to go back. And I guarantee if you went back to that time of decisions, you weren't thinking clearly. Your mind was clouded. Your heart was for the things of the flesh. Your heart was for the things of the world. And you were not thinking. How many times have you taught somebody and said, man, you're not thinking. Look, the decisions that you make are going to ultimately make you and dictate how the rest of your life ultimately goes. And I want to let you know this. For every single person who is in sin, and right now maybe you say, I'm a believer, but I'm struggling with sin, but it's okay. You're in a very dangerous place because here's what has to happen. You have to understand is even though you may not be at loss for salvation in Christ, you need to understand that there are always consequences for the sins of a believer. Jesus will forgive you of your sin. Every sin that you come, truly repentant and say, God, would you forgive me? He's already forgiven you at the cross. And he'll already take, and he'll take you in in communion with him and fellowship with him. But here's what I have to let you understand. There are consequences for the decisions that you're about to make. And some of you aren't thinking clearly. Somewhere in this service and the next service, we're going to have a spouse that's thinking about leaving their husband or leaving their wife. And you're not thinking clearly. There's some right now that are thinking about committing adultery on their spouse, and you're not thinking clearly. There's some of you right now that all you're thinking of is getting a better job, making more money, and you're not thinking clearly of the role that God has called you to to lead your family. And one day you're going to wake up with all the money you have and your kids are going to hate God. Are you, are you hearing what I'm saying this morning? There are consequences for our actions. Ultimate consequences are are sent away, but there are consequences for your actions and my actions. Do you know what the consequence for many believers are? For many believers that go down a track of sin, then what they have to do is they have to fight against the bad habits of sin that they built and brought up in life. Anybody have bad habits of sin in their life? And you hate it. You want to do away with it. So what I'm saying right now, don't even go there. Wake up. Either be saved or get right. And here's the idea. If, you, if there's any desire whatsoever, it's because of God's grace he's extended to you now. 
If there's any part of you that's sitting there and you're going, I want to be saved, I've got to get right, it's because of the gracious, it is because of the gracious work of Jesus Christ inside of you. He loved you so much. He died on the cross. His death, burial, and resurrection made it possible for you to be right with God. So if you would indeed repent from your sin and place your faith and say, God, I can't do it myself. I'm going to follow you. I know I'll stumble in many ways, but, I'm, but the trajectory of my life is going to be completely sold out to you. God will save you right where you are. I'm going to ask you to close your eyes and bow your heads. Ashley's coming at this time. Here's just what I want to ask. Has God spoken to you today through his word? Are you right now living in this Esau principle where in your life, You're actively giving up things with eternal value for temporal satisfaction. Whether you are a believer or not, we can both be practicing that principle. If you do not know Christ, I'm going to be down here in just a couple minutes. I want to talk with you about how you can come to faith in Him, how you can know Him. There's no magic bullet, there's only repenting and believing. You could do that right where you are. But I also know that there's some believers right now, right now, I know, because through 20 years of ministry, I've made a living of counseling with believers who are living by the Esau principle. And right now, wherever you are, I'm going to ask you to repent from that, to turn from that come awake and my heart towards God and Jesus this morning is that you will see Christ like never before and that you will see that he is infinitely greater than whatever it is that your flesh is desiring Jesus lead us help us grant us your grace and your mercy give us a picture of your infinite worth and value in Jesus name we pray amen will you stand will you stand today Will you respond? I'll be right down here this morning. Rich or begging, strong or lame, come
you to please be seated as we continue our worship in this time our, for our uh, uh, ushers to come come forward. And would you uh, join me in prayer as we uh, receive the tithes and offerings. Dear God, we thank you so much for today, the chance to be in your house, to worship you, and um, to worship you in a time of giving. And Lord, may this be a time uh, where uh, we give you honor and praise that we are faithful, whether small or great, with what you have given, may we be truly faithful. We thank you for the gift of your son, uh, and it's because of him that we're here today. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. Troubles chasing me again Breaking down my best defense, I'm looking, God, I'm looking for you, and weary just won't let me rest, fear is filling up my head, I'm longing, oh God, I'm longing. 